We'll take just one verse as our text this morning, and but we will look at various throughout the sermon, and all those will be on the walls behind me. But first, let's look at what our Lord says of himself in Mark 10. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Let us pray. Lord, what sweeter words could ever be said than these, that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom. Lord, this is our hope. Would you help us to understand it even more deeply and clearly this morning? Father, I pray for the aid, the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I realize that, Lord, words fail, but, Lord God, you, through your Spirit, can make truth resound in the hearts and lives of your people. Father, I pray for the lifeless one whose heart is as hard as a stone. Oh God, this morning, might you give that heart a pulse and change it from stone to flesh. And Lord, open eyes to behold and see the glory and the majesty of your son, Jesus. And Lord God, we cannot do this unaided. So Father, please, by your spirit, work in our midst this morning, we pray in his name. You know, we're in the second week of Advent, as Pastor Kyle mentioned earlier in the week's focus is peace. In Hebrew, that word peace is the word shalom. If you go to Israel, it's a common greeting. Even saying goodbye or, or leaving, you would, might simply greet someone with the word shalom. But when we think of shalom, it doesn't simply mean an absence of conflict. That's how we normally think of peace. There are no wars, there are no conflicts. But rather, biblically speaking, shalom means wholeness. Shalom is working is really the idea when all things are working as God originally intended. Before the fall of man in Genesis 3, there would have been shalom. There would have been wholeness. There was intimacy between God and man in creation. So when we talk about it this morning, it is actually through the work of Christ that this wholeness will come. But it will come in the most mysterious of ways. Wholeness, shalom, come through brokenness. It will come through the brokenness of the cross. That's why John MacArthur, he said, the shadow of the cross looms, looms over the manger. When you understand that, you do understand Christmas. You cannot separate the two. You look at the cross, the manger has no significance apart from the cross of Christ. So when we talk about this, we understand that the death of Christ for sinners is the most remarkable and the most compelling event in all of history. Nothing else is even worthy to be compared and nothing else even comes close to it. So when we're talking about Christmas, not secular Christmas as the way it's celebrated in the malls or in the halls of academia today, but rather we're talking about as the people of God, the incarnation of the Son of God. That's what we're celebrating. But the question naturally arises, okay, he took on flesh, why did he come? Jesus told us specifically. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But before he told us why he came, he first told us why he did not come. He said he did not enter into this world to be served. That's very odd for a king to not to be served. But 
our Lord needed nothing. He had no needs. He had no lack. He was perfect in all his ways. All eternity, he had always lived in imperfection. So when he enters in this world, he did not need to be served. He has always been the giver. We have always been the receiver. How would he give? How would he serve? And he says this, by giving his life as a ransom for many. In other words, he came to die. He was born to die. His death was prophesied in many places in the Old Testament. It's not, it's not there's just one isolated example. There are many, for instance, Isaiah 53. We always think of that at Christmas as well. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He slaughtered. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so our Lord opened not his mouth. Three verses later, yet it pleased the Lord. And we'll talk about that. How could it please the Lord to crush his son? That word bruise, Hebrews crush. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. That was pleasing to the Father. He is put into grief when you make his soul an offering to the Lord. Zechariah, very instructive prophecy here. This is the Father calling for the sword to smite his son. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, as he commanded, and the sheep will be scattered. The death of Christ was prophesied in the Old Testament. It is also the central theme of the New Testament and New Testament preaching. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the theme of apostolic preaching. But what is it that he actually came to do? We see here, we have the Son of God becomes a man. He becomes the Son of Man. So that the sons of men might become the sons of God. But when we're talking about the sons of men for which he came, we're not talking about morally neutral men. They're not simply men, but rather they're fallen men. Sinful hateful to God, unacceptable to God. So the truth is that all mankind lay under the just condemnation of God's holy law. Every mouth is stopped. We're all condemned. And if we're ever to be right with God, then the law of God demanded a full reparation be made. But it was not possible that a sinful man could ever do it and all men by nature are sinners. So that meant we were trapped in a dreadful state, unable to extricate or free ourselves. We desperately needed a mediator. What do we mean when we say a mediator? Someone who would stand in the gap and plead our case for Father God. Where would you look for one like this? Where could such a man like this be found? I mean, he's going to have to be able to bridge the gap that sin made, and it's, a, it's an infinite gap. We're fallen men. So he also, whoever would this mediator be, he must be entrusted with the interest of God, for he is the offended party. But at the same time, this mediator must be able to represent man who would be so far below him. How could this possibly be? Our, we are told in scriptures that our iniquities, our sins, have separated us from God. 
So really, the truth is the situation is absolutely dire and hopeless. Unless, unless God would descend to us, but we could never ascend to him. God must come down, for man can never go up. This is what Christmas is really about. This is why Christmas or the incarnation was necessary. We needed God with us. We needed Emmanuel. But again, if full redemption or full atonement was to be made, two things were required, and they could not be skipped. Number one, you had to have a perfect obedience to the law of God. It must be rendered. That's what Adam failed to do. He was tasked to do that, but he failed. So we needed someone to stand in our place and succeed where Adam had failed. Secondly, though, when we failed, because we had broken the law of God, a punishment was rendered. The wages of sin is death. So we also needed someone who could endure and satisfy God's just wrath, and I say just wrath, that was against us. But only God could do that. But how could God enter into a place of subservience and become subject to the demands of God's law? God is transcendent. How could he ever do that? And even moreover, if he is to pay the penalty, he must die. How could God suffer? How could God die? And here we begin to see the divine mystery. One of the eternal three. One of the blessed trinity. Without ever ceasing to be God, took upon himself the form of a servant and he becomes a man. This is the incarnation. God taking on flesh. The incarnation is what would lead to our redemption. Christ Jesus is going to serve as that blessed mediator between God and his sinful people. He's going to intervene between the two parties who are odds with each other and he's going to secure eternal peace eternal shalom. When we think about Christ standing there as a mediator, it is important that we understand he did not press the claims of justice against us. He could have easily done that. We would have been damned, rightfully so, cast off from God for all eternity. But rather, Christ stands as our friend and he, he actually rescues us, excuse me, rescues us by rendering satisfaction to God simple man could never do that. He could never appease the anger of God. So another man was required to stand in our place and atone for our guilt and secure our peace. This mediator, there would have been, if he's going to do this, there are so many things that were necessary that were young, beyond the pale of human ability. Now the very first thing, it is true, the mediator must truly be a man. He can't just be God only, nor could he be man only. He must be related to both parties and be the equal of either. So as mediator, he's required, you're going to have to find someone, not a demi-God, not half God, half man, truly God, and yet truly man. Why did he have to be a man? Because it was man who had sinned, and it was man who was demanded to make restitution. It was man who sinned, so man must die. 
it was man who was required to obey the law perfectly, so it is a man who must obey the law perfectly. So the payment, the penalty, has to fall on mankind. Again, as I told you Romans earlier, 6.23, the wages, the payment of sin is death. Not just die. Christ could not just come and die. He also had to pay the debt to God's law that we owe. You have to render perfect obedience if you and I are to be set free. So when we think about the incarnation, the reason was that Christ, he would be subject to the law as the perfect substitute for his people and do for them what they could never do for themselves. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes about this. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, for what purpose? To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. Here we find the word Jesus is the son of man, and he, our substitute, would render perfect obedience to God's law, wherein Adam had failed to do. Timothy writes, there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Now here, Paul is referring to our Lord in his humanity. He calls him the man, Christ Jesus. He's wanting to emphasize there, man has this responsibility to God. But he can't just be a man. He can't be an ordinary man. He must be sinless. If he's going to be our mediator, he has to be free from that which made the atonement necessary. Why was the atonement necessary? What caused an atonement to be needed? Our sin. So then this mediator must be sinless, or otherwise he too would need to be redeemed. If he were a sinner, he couldn't even take away his own sins, much less serve to be the savior of others. So he has to be a true man and yet have no sin whatsoever. Now, the sinlessness of the Messiah was foreshadowed in various types throughout the Old Testament. It's seen in the sacrificial system. You know there, if you look back at the Old Testament law, those lambs that were going to be used in sacrifice had to be without blemish, no spot. They had to be perfect. So, too, our sacrificial lamb had to be spotless and without blemish. Peter writes about this. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition of your fathers, what were you redeemed by? But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without, blem without blemish and without spot. But if you think about how, is, how could Christ be sinless? The curse of sin is passed two ways. Number one, being born under the curse. That doctrine of original sin. Adam failed, and he was our federal head, so his guilt was imputed to all his race. So that means every person born of Adam is now born guilty. As cute as that little infant is, they're guilty. Adam's guilt, Adam's sin is imputed to them. So we've all been born with this original sin. So we're born guilty. 
Now, the second way the, sin, the curse of sin is passed is by actual transgression. And you and I are cursed both ways. We are born under the curse. We're born guilty. But we've added to that because you and I have personally transgressed and personally broken God's law. All of us. So we deserve to be damned. And Lord Jesus was not born of Adam. He inherited no original sin. He did not come through Adam's line. Instead, our Savior was supernaturally conceived in the virgin's womb. Friends, if you get rid of the virgin birth, you get rid of the gospel. If Christ is born of natural generation, he also is a sinner by birth. Christ was not. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, the blessed virgin Mary, she shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Christ was born free of original sin. What about his life? He never transgressed. He never sinned. He never broke God's holy law. Not in thought, not in word, not in deed, not in motive. Peter says, speaking of Christ, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. See, the atonement required that who's ever going to serve as this mediator, he's got to be a man. Man has done all the damage. But he also has to be a sinless man. He would have to go further than that. He must also be holy. Sinless is just the absence of sin. We needed someone with positive virtue. Someone who's actually holy. And sometimes we read these verses and we just skip over them. Luke chapter 1. And the angel answered and said to her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, the Holy One, who is to be born, will be called the Son of God. The author of Hebrews in chapter 7 says, For such a high priest became us, who is holy. Now, if you go into the pages of the New Testament, particularly like Mark chapter 5, you're going to see that the Lord Jesus could touch the leper, and yet he would remain undefiled. The Lord Jesus could come in contact with the dead and ceremonially unclean and not, yet not become unclean himself. How? Because he was not just sinless, he is holy. He's the holy one, full of virtue, full of excellence. What else? What else would be in there? He could be holy, he could be free from all corruption. But unless this mediator would choose to act voluntarily for the good of others, it would not be valid. So you need a mediator who's willing and volunteering to come. Because to suffer in the place of someone else could not be compulsory. It must be a voluntary act. Arthur Pink said this, To compel one to suffer for another would be the height of injustice. Moreover, God will not accept any sacrifice which is reluctantly offered to him. Apart. So what about our Lord? Did he come willingly? In the eternal covenant of redemption, Jesus joyfully gave his consent. How do you know that? Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8. Then I said, this is Christ, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, my God. And your law is within my heart. In John 4, Jesus said that his meat, his food, his very subsistence, was to do the will of the Father who sent me. His delight was to do it. His very meaning of life was to do it. 
In Isaiah 56, notice what he says here. I gave my back to those who struggled with me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spit. He gave it to them. In the pages of the New Testament, we're told that he set his face like a flint to head to Jerusalem, knowing full well what awaited him there. And in John 10, that great passage about our good shepherd, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. What does this mean? It was mean Jesus was not forced. No one was twisting his arm or strong-arming him to do something that we'd rather not do. Jesus Christ, our divine mediator, laid down his life willingly. And yet there's another quality that must be there. And this is the one that perhaps we don't think much of. And I think it give, give me a little bit of time to explain it. He must be united to his mediator. But this union must be a federal representation. Christ was substituted for his people only because he is and was one with them. I ask my students at Grace all the time, and we have a called God and I time. I ask, how did Jesus' death free you? They're like, well, he paid for my sins. But how did his death free you? I understand he died. I understand he rose again. How did that free you? No one usually gets the answer. This is the answer. He is and was one with us. Our union with Christ, we have to understand this. This is part of the gospel. So this means that our sin truly became his. Isaiah 53, verse 6, we read it earlier. And the Lord said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We turned everyone to his own way. And now notice the last part again. And the Lord has laid on him, the Father laid on the Son, the iniquity of us all. So God the Father, there at Calvary, imputes the sins, the iniquity of his people, to Christ. Now the Lord Jesus was personally innocent. He's sinless, right? Yet he's officially guilty. Say it again. Personally innocent. Officially guilty which is why the father could say that it pleased him to crush his son. Because he, the son, was being a sin-bearing substitute. This is why the father could justly call in Zechariah for the sword to awake and smite his son. The father would have never smitten the son had the son not been bearing the sins of his people. So he's crushing his son, he's bruising him, and it pleased the Lord to do so because his son at that point was carrying our sin. What happened to Christ should have happened to us. But there was a double imputation. Our sins were given to him and he bore them in his own body on the tree. Remember that perfect sinless life he lived? That's a record of righteousness that we have to have. And that also was given to us undeservedly so, by imputation. Our sins are imputed to Christ while his righteous record is imputed to us. And this is what Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 5. For he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, with the result that we might become, we might be declared the righteousness of God out in him. 
friends, this is how we're justified before God, seeing that we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. He got our sin, and we got his righteousness. And you're saying, well, how did that work? I'm glad, yes. In 1 Corinthians chapter, or in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, we see a very important verse. And so it is written. Now, notice the language here, because Paul can be very wordy. Yeah, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So you have a first Adam and a last Adam. The first man, notice how Paul's saying it, was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the word from heaven. So you have a first Adam, a last Adam, a first man, and a second man. What's the point? The whole world is divided into two groups. All people, regardless of where they live, fall into one of these two categories. This is how the Bible divides humanity. We are either in Adam or we're in Christ. Adam is the first man. The word Jesus is referred to as the second man or the last Adam. Now, why do we, does Paul refer to Jesus as the second man? I mean, there were lots of men who lived between Adam and Christ. So what was it that was compelling Paul to call Jesus the second man? And here's where it gets the Bible really only recognizes two men. God in his wisdom has chosen these two men, Adam and the Lord Jesus, the last Adam, to be the representatives, or we might say covenant heads, of their people. Federal representatives. What does that mean? It means their actions, whether good or bad, Christ is good, Adam's are bad, will affect all those whom they represent. What happened to Adam is going to happen to all his progeny. So Adam then, in the garden, he stands as our federal head of the human race. And he fails. He failed miserably. He sinned against God. God had entered into a covenant with him, so Adam's there as our legal representative, but in this case representing all humanity, and he fails big time. So which is why we say when Adam sin, or, um, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. When Adam fell, all mankind fell with him, and we have been born guilty and sinful ever since. Every single person. Not with Christ. Romans 5. Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered the world, death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Then there's the work of this second man, the last Adam. Romans 5, verse 14 and 15, or 18, 19, me. Therefore, as by the offense of one, again, Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, that's the last Adam, Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam's, many are made sinners, so by the obedience of one, Christ, shall many be made righteous. So what is this even talking about? The Lord Jesus' obedience brought light, righteousness and life to whom? To all who are in him. In Adam, everyone dies. In Christ, everyone lives. How do you get an Adam? You're born. That's it, you're born. How do you get in Christ? You must be born again. Christ, come. Listen carefully. Came to his people. Matthew 1, 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why Jesus? For he shall save whom? His people. 
their sins. He did not come to get a people for himself, to, but rather to secure the people who were already his. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, we have our Lord praying to his Father. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Now listen to verse 2. You have given him authority over all flesh. No one's exempt from that. Christ is authority over all mankind. But that he should give eternal life, not to all mankind, to as many as you have given him. He came for those who have been given to him by his Father. Ephesians 1, 4. According as he hath chosen us in him for the foundation of the world. See, Christ came to bear his people's sins. And now that he's ascended to heaven, we are clothed with the reward of his suffering and his obedience. Now, there are many today, many critics and enemies of the cross, and they say that what we're talking about today is cosmic child abuse. They're saying it's, it's heretical to think that God punished the innocent instead of the guilty. They fail to understand our union with Christ. Christ is personally innocent, officially guilty. Our sin was laid upon him, Isaiah 53, 6. That's how Father punished him. Personally innocent, officially guilty, but they don't understand our union. And I think it's not taught a lot in churches. Look at the language of union found in the pages of the, Old, or the New Testament. <coughs> in Hebrews 2, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Christ is not ashamed of you folks. He calls you family. He calls you his brother or his sister. Ephesians 1.4, we're chosen in Christ. 2.10, we're created in Christ. Ephesians 2.6, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians 5.30, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are members of that. Colossians 2, we're circumcised in Christ. 2.12, we are raised with Christ through faith. Start to see it. One of the precious doctrines of the faith is our union with the Lord which explains how we can be justified by the work of another. Now, the, human, the mediator must be human. He must be sinless. He must be holy. But lastly, he must be divine. See, the mediator would have to restore divine favor to those under the curse. He would have to render to the law a perfect obedience. Adam couldn't do that. He would also require to present to God a satisfaction that had infinite merit and which would procure infinite blessings for his people. No finite creature could ever do it. He would also have to be able to endure the full weight of God's outward wrath upon all the sins of his people. Endure it. Suffer for it. But additionally, he would also have to vanquish or conquer the devil and release the captives. He would have to destroy sin so that the sting of sin was removed. He would also have to defeat death and then give eternal life to all that the Father who had given, given to him. But additionally, this mediator, whoever he would be, would also have to then give the Holy Spirit to his people. The Holy Spirit is the one who actually applies the redemption that had been purchased. Who could do this? God only. Therefore, our mediator also be divine. In Hebrews 10, it's the last text we'll look at this morning. Verse 4, 5, and 10. 
It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Therefore, when he, Christ, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. What did God desire for a son? But a body to be prepared for him. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All of the Old Testament sacrifices were incapable of rendering perfect obedience to the law, nor could they endure the full penalty. It's just not possible. That means you can take all the cattle in all the world and the fire of God's judgment would fall and God's wrath would still burn hot. God's wrath would not be abated. Notice verse 10. This is awesome. Christ offered himself. He didn't offer a lamb. He didn't offer a bull. He didn't offer a goat. He offered himself. In verse 10, by that will we have been sanctified. And elsewhere it says sanctified forever. How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all. This the one who perfectly obeyed the righteous demands of God's law, the one who endured the full extent of the wrath of God at the cross, so much so that the wrath has now gone from us. This is why Paul could write, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So you ask, why did he come? He took on flesh. He entered our world to die. He says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. See, friends, there's just two, two heads of humanity. That's it. Adam, Christ. You were born naturally into Adam. You stand condemned there. You were born supernaturally into Christ. There is no other Savior. There is no other mediator. So my exhortation to all those who hear me today would be run to the one who died, rose again in the sinner's place. Friends, your sins have separated you from God. You need someone who will stand the gap for you. God has faithfully offered you in the person and work of his son. Run to Christ today. And may all those who know him in faith and know him in May we worship him today as he is ought to be worshipped. Let us now pray and prepare our hearts while we celebrate this blessed sacrament in the giving of the body and blood of our Lord so that we might be Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, I thank you this morning. Such a glorious, glorious thought, a sublime message, full of glory. Oh, God, help us to see, Lord, may this excite, animate, move us, Lord. Give us eyes to see Jesus, the crown prince of heaven, the heir of all things, our Savior, our mediator. God, help us to know, Lord, the work that he's doing now, even interceding for us before the throne. Father, thank you, Lord, for this blessed season, Lord, where we can once again be reminded, Lord, be reminded of these eternal truths and weighty matters, Lord. It's not just sentimental. It's not just Norman Rockwell. It's not just dancing around a Christmas tree, but Father, the Son of God taking on flesh to die in the place of sinners. 
Lord, what better message, the most hope-filled message there is. God, would you save sinners today? Lord, if there's one here, Lord, would you work conviction in their heart? Lord, let them understand that they're under your just condemnation. That, Father, you don't delight in punishing, but rather you are God who delights to save. Lord, give them a heart to believe and run to Christ today. Save them, Father, for Jesus' sake, we pray. And, Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, who know Christ and who know you, Lord, through him, God, prepare our hearts, Lord. God, warm our affections toward you. God, help us, Lord, to worship you correctly this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory alone. Amen. I'm going to ask the deacons to come to the table as